Gracious God, we thank you for bringing us to the end of this wonderful study on the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. We pray for our final conversation today, that we would solidify those things that we've learned and be challenged and encouraged in fresh ways. And above all, have our eyes open to your goodness and faithfulness, not just in scripture, but in our lives. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there. We are now at the very end of our prequel, really, to the call of Abram in chapter 12 and the culmination of this fall that has been continuous starting in chapter three, right? The fall was not a one-time event. It's something that got amplified with Cain killing Abel, with Lamech's swearing vengeance 77-fold upon those who curse him. There was a little bit of a restart with Noah trying to salvage the whole thing, but that, of course, didn't work because the Lord saw that the inclination of the human heart was on nothing but evil from the beginning. And so the culmination of this, this world comes together in the story of Babel. And in verse two, we hear that they are migrating from the east. Certainly that is speaking about just a geographic fact, but we can also look at that symbolically as they move further and further east of Eden. The title of that Steinbeck novel has become a metaphor for moving away from God. We live east of Eden. We're moving east and east and east, further and away from our home. And there's this series of really imperatives. Let us make bricks. Let us build a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. There's a lot of agency and independence and willfulness in this collective cry of wanting to build something apart from God. And notice, what is the first thing they say? Come, let us make bricks. And of course, in the Old Testament, where else do we see people making bricks? We see this in Exodus 5. When the Israelites complain, no straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, make more bricks. Making bricks is what the Israelite slaves were asked to do. And I can't help but think that this is a commentary on this freedom they think they have, that here they are trying to exercise their independence. They are trying to build. They're saying, come, let us make bricks. But because this is a parallel or brings to mind that story in the book of Exodus, maybe this is a commentary right off the bat that they are enslaved by their decision 
desire for independence. So this is actually a form of slavery. Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build our own city. I can't help but, but note that the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is about the city of God coming down as a gift. You can read about that in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem descending, God giving us a heavenly city as a gift. A city is not something we build. A city is something that comes down to us in Scripture as a gift. It's a city that God is building through the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, really the most flagrant of all, come, let us make a name for ourselves. Because in Scripture and in baptism, it is God who names us. God is always giving people new names. Saul becomes Paul. Abram becomes Abraham. You know, Peter becomes Cephas. In baptism, one way of thinking about this is we are giving a name. A name is God's child. And, and of course, we can see this as a metaphor for what so many of us are trying to do in this world as we, metaphorically speaking, migrate east of Eden. We're trying to find a name for ourselves through the money we accumulate, through the successes we rack up, through our reputation, through our comfort level, through our political affiliation, whatever it is, through our moral obedience, right? The older son. In the parable of the prodigal son, he wanted to make a name for himself as a good old boy who never disobeyed his father. The younger son wanted to make a name for himself as being the rebellious fun one who left his father's house. And yet the invitation, right, is to allow God to name us. And so here you have humanity migrating east of Eden, building their own city, trying to make their own name, making bricks, which in scripture is a metaphor for slavery. So they are enslaved, but they don't know it. And what does God say in verse seven? Come, let us go down. And so you have that parallel structure, right, where God says, come, let us go down to counteract the come, let us make bricks, come, let us build a city. And this parallel structure is really meant to draw our attention to the manner in which God is responding to their assertion of independence. Philip Turner pointed out in our Sunday study that this is really just a replication of Adam eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, trying to do things his own way. And uh, I, I heard it read in a commentary, or I read it in a commentary about this verse. Uh, it just said, Said on this verse, something along the lines of man proposes, God disposes. And certainly we don't want to uh, apply that formula to anything we propose, nor do we want to shut down uh, our creative impulse as people made in God's image. That's not the thing being critiqued. What's being critiqued here, I think, is this, I want to do it myself. I want to build a society. I want to protect myself with my own resources, my own knowledge, my own willpower. I want to make a name for myself. I want our group to have a name for ourselves, which is the exact opposite, right, of living in dependence and trust on the one who made us. This is really a parody of the dominion that Adam was given in the garden because the dominion he was given was to act as God's representative as someone who shared God's name with the whole creation, with someone tasked with naming the animals, 
right? Sharing in God's creative work, not naming himself. And so what you have here is really uh, just a replication of the fall and Adam's sin in a different form. And it's one you're going to see repeated in scripture. A good example of this in the Old Testament is when all the Israelites say, come, let us find a king for ourselves. And God says, you don't need a king. I'll be your king. But the people insist, and God gives them a king in Saul. Saul is not a good king. Then they have David, and David's remembered for being a great king, but David was super flawed. And then, of course, you have Solomon, and under Solomon, what happens? The 12 tribes of Israel are scattered, right? It's a new story of Babel, right? The, the, the tribes are scattered throughout the earth and only a remnant, the tribe of, of Judah, remains. I, I think it's also just important to make a link between Babel and Babylon, and what happens in the Old Testament with the Babylonians. There's a captivity. The Israelites are scattered. They are sent off to Babylon in exile. We read a little bit about that when we did our study on the book of Daniel. And so you kind of have a lot going on here in this story, which would have reached its final form, the form we have it in now, in written form, probably when the tribe of Judah was in exile, right? And so um, not that this is when that story began, but whenever it came together in its final form, they would have had the story of the Israelites making bricks under Pharaoh. They would have had the story of the Israelites saying, come, let us find a king for ourselves, and knowing that that did not turn out well. And so one of the ways of reading the story, even though historically speaking, it predates the call of Abraham is frankly just to know that this story would have had meaning to the people of Israel who were scattered all over the face of the earth and who were waiting for God to come down in a different way and to unite them right? Because here we have God coming down and scattering them. And this is part of how the Israelites understood their life in exile. God came down, scattered them because of their sins, scattered them because they asserted their independence as God's people. And so the question then arose, will God come down and unite? One last thing I'll point out, because scripture really all does tie together. These are not little moralistic fables that have no connection. Think of Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost, right? God comes down again, but rather than confusing people's language where they're all babbling, it only seems that way to outsiders because people are speaking different languages, but they understand each other. And so you have the Holy Spirit reversing Babel. And so what we see here, this, this judgment, where God scatters. It has many meanings, but it's certainly not an ultimate picture of God's intent, right? Because the salvation we see in the New Testament, in a sense, is the exact opposite. And, and the greatest uh, evidence for that is that the Bible ends not when God says, okay, you're good boys and girls, y'all build your city now, but rather when God says, I've got the city. It's called the New Jerusalem, and it's going to come down from heaven to you. You're not going to build it to me. It's going to come from me to you, right? The, the movement of humanity to God is not about us climbing. It is about God's descent. And I think that we see a big foreshadowing of that here in the story of the Tower of Babel. These are the descendants of Shem. 
When Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. I'm going to skip a few verses where there's a lot of people begetting other people. And Sarah lived after the birth of Nahor for 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived for 29 years, he became the father of Terah. When Terah had lived for 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. All right, so this is how the prequel ends. You remember Noah had three sons. Ham and Canaan did not fare so well, uh, but Shem was really the winner out of that. Uh, he got the greatest blessing, and uh, he had a lot of descendants, and out of those descendants came a man by the name of Abram. And Abram, of course, uh, marries Sarai, his uh, half-sister. Sarai becomes Sarah. Abram becomes Abraham. And from Abraham come the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, from whom the Messiah, the one who does bring salvation to the world, is brought into being. But I didn't really want to end Genesis 1 through 11 at the end of chapter 11. I wanted to read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12, not only to kind of bridge this prequel with where the Judeo-Christian story starts officially in Genesis 12, but I think there's a larger symbolic question we all have to ask, which is, does the story of scripture end with Genesis chapter 11? Or is Genesis chapter 12 valid? And I mean that very symbolically, right? Because what happens in Genesis 1 through 11, well, it's a big screw up, right? God creates this beautiful garden, creates these humans to live. They rebel in a million different ways. God tries to save them through Noah and the ark, but their hearts are too evil, you know, and, and the whole thing culminates with everyone migrating east and east and east, further and further away from God, and God scatters them. And the question is, is that how the story ends? Does it end with a bunch of human beings scattered and not understanding each other and working against each other and fighting each other? You know, a lot of people in our world think that that's all there is. And it's very hard to figure out where the meaning is, where the hope is. And people cope with that in a lot of different ways. Or is there hope? Does the promise continue? Is God's faithfulness, God's covenant righteousness, God's promise to be with this creation he loves so much? Is that going to continue? And of course, in Genesis chapter 12, it continues as the Lord finds Abram. And why does the Lord find Abram? It's a little bit of a mystery, right? Uh, in the same way that we, we talked about how Noah found favor, but as E.V. pointed out, that's better translated or at least equally translated as favor found Noah, grace found Noah. And now grace finds Abram and the journey is going to continue. And the first thing the Lord says to him is the word go. It's an 
imperative. Go. It's, it's the very first thing Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28 when he gives them the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, it's an imperative to go. And so much of Scripture hinges on those three words, so Abram went. Abram could have not gone. Abram could have ignored the call, right? It's, it's kind of like the angel going to Mary and Mary said yes, right? Mary said yes, Abram went. Abram was not a perfect person, but whenever he was called, we're told that he went. And he went when he was 75 years old. Now, the human body did not work any differently when God called Abram. 75 was 75. And for the next 24 years, very little would happen in Abram's life. He'd see very little fruit that God was truly blessing him. Uh, his wife was barren, which frankly is not just a literal problem. It's a metaphor for a world that can't give birth to love, can't give birth to truth. I mean, have you ever felt like barrenness was a symbol for this whole human existence? When will truth and love finally be born? <laughs> You know, uh, and so barrenness, right, is the opposite of resurrection. Barrenness is that state where nothing comes into being, where everything is stagnant and hopeless. And so the question is, will God open the womb? And in the New Testament, will God open the grave? But all this starts, right, with the call of one person. And what does God say to Abram? I will make your name great. Contrast what God says, I will make your name great with come, let us make a name for ourselves. It's the exact opposite, right? God says, I'm going to name you. You're not going to name yourself. You're not going to make a name for yourself. I'm going to make a name for you. And of course, this is what baptism is, right? Whenever we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, more is Christ and forever God names us. One of the ways that the Bible hints at heaven is that that is where we all discover our name. There's a great verse in the book of Revelation, chapter two, verse 17, where it says, I will give each person a new stone or a white stone. And on that stone is a new name that no one knows except the one who gives it and the one who receives it. And, and the idea is that God is the only one who knows your name and that when you stand before God, you finally find out. You know, we, we go about life thinking we know who we are, or we get depressed because we know that we don't know who we are. But the truth is, is that each one of us is a mystery. Only God knows our name. And, and God gives us that name when the new city descends from heaven. But here he says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here we have not just the promise to Abraham, but the vocation of Israel. We see this articulated again in the book of Isaiah. I have given you as a light to the nations so that my salvation and blessing may reach the ends of the earth. This was Israel's vocation to be a blessing to all the peoples, including the Gentiles. But of course, what happens over time, right, is that they got very insular and very scared of the outside peoples and they quarreled within and they went into exile and this, this tribe of people, the descendants of Abraham, were not a blessing at all, but actually an occupied people making bricks under Rome whenever Jesus shows up in the first century. And so whenever we read this, this promise, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, I think to read this through Christian eyes is not to say that his physical descendants who make up the 12 tribes of Israel through their good works will heal the world, but rather, right, as we kind of trace the biblical story and we look at the genealogy, that David had a son, 
right? David, who ultimately is part of this lineage, uh, had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. Uh, and this son was the very one who was the child of Mary, who when told to go and do something risky, did it, right? Mary said yes. And so whenever we read this promise in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. One of the ways of reading this, I think, with the New Testament in mind is to say that through Abram comes the true Israelite, right? The Messiah in whom we are all blessed. Because remember, the salvation that God tried to work through Noah, right? Let's just build an ark and flood the world. This clearly wasn't going to work. This clearly wasn't how the story was going to move forward. A tribe of people through their own efforts and actions and laws, I mean, that that also was not going to work, right? Because it didn't deal with the problem of the human heart that God laid out as being central in Genesis 6, when he says, God looked at the inclination of the human heart was evil from birth. And so in order for the blessing to come upon the world, the problem of the heart had to be dealt with. And so as we look at the prophets, we look at Jeremiah, we look at Ezekiel, what's the prophet? What did the prophets say? But a day will come when I will send my spirit upon you and I will remove your heart of stone and will give you a new heart of flesh. And of course, what is that spirit tied to but Pentecost and what is Pentecost but the reversal of Babel, which we just read. Uh, and so there's a lot here. I'm going to stop babbling myself about the first couple of verses of Genesis. But as we get to the end of Genesis 11, the question is, where's the hope? How does the story move forward? And it all comes with this pivot uh, in the story where God goes to one person, a descendant of Noah, a descendant of Shem, Abram, and says, okay, favor has now found you, and I want you to go to that place I will show you. And because we are part of Abram's family, I don't know if you sang that song growing up, uh, Father Abraham and many sons, uh, and I am one of them. The question is, as we read this, do we understand that favor and grace has also found us, and that the same thing God says to Abram, he says to us, go, go to that place I will show you you will be a blessing, right? Because we are baptized into the family who are part of this covenant, right? So the same thing God says to Abram, he says to us. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and we'll see uh, what gets stirred up in you as you think about this.